All right. Well, this morning we are going to be spending a bulk of our time in the book of Philippians chapter 1. It's a book that we've been going through in our Bible study and Foundations uh, Bible study and uh, is... Uh, been a joy to to my heart and to those who have been involved in the study and uh, something that God has been honored uh, brought honor to himself to uh, to bring the truths to us and uh, so it is uh, a joy now to bring some of those truths and reflections that we've made throughout our study of the book of Philippians as we're getting ready to wrap up here in a couple of weeks but um, before we go any further why don't you uh, join me in a word of prayer Dear Lord, we thank you for another morning, another time, another opportunity for us to gather together to worship you. Lord, we pray that we do not take these times for granted, Lord. We pray that they would be a foretaste of what lies ahead of us, what you have in store for us, Lord, when we will see you face to face, when we will no longer worship through sin, Uh, when we will no longer sing to you uh, with the stains of flesh, Lord. Uh, But we pray that these times would make us hungry and thirst for a time to where uh, we will be able to fully worship you, God, uh, without any hindrance. We pray, Lord, this morning as we open up your word, that you would grant us the understanding that we need to better understand who we are, who you have created us to be, so that we may better glorify you and represent you here. Praise your name. Amen. Well, today we live in a world that is obsessed with the idea of identity. People today, I believe more than ever before, are asking themselves the question, how do I identify myself? There have been many different ways in which we have traditionally chosen to identify ourselves. It could be by a political party. It could be by a sports team that we cheer for. Maybe you're a Ford guy or a Chevy gal, or maybe, God forbid, as I was raised in my household, God forbid you are a John Deere person. (laughs) Maybe you ride and die with Harley Davidson. PC or Apple, Star Wars or Star Trek, Dunkin' or Starbucks. Maybe you like In-N-Out and maybe you're wrong. (laughs) There are countless corporations existing today whose entire operation is to get us to take upon ourselves the identity that they put forward. There have been, of course, more recent developments for how people have attempted to identify themselves that have shown a rebellion against God's created order. This past week I was reading about the nominal gender, which is as if your gender is so much just you that no one else can ever experience it. There is even a xenogender, which is feeling more like an animal, plant, food, than a human. Our world is certainly following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But it is interesting that the world is so obsessed with identity 
and what that means for our lives and our behavior. This morning, I want us to take a look and take some time to consider about who we primarily identify as. When we ask this question, the most important thing for us to consider is not how do we identify ourselves, but how does God identify us? If you are a Christian, then you are a new creation. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are one in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul uses interesting language in calling us citizens, showing the believers at Ephesus that in Christ, they have a new way of being identified by God. We are no longer strangers or aliens outside of God's redemptive plan, but we have been grafted into the household of God by the death of Jesus Christ. This is the reality. This is the crux of the main command for the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Now, after Paul opens up this book of, uh, to the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians, he has the traditional greetings to the believers at Philippi, which he has been privileged to, to serve, as Neil read for us in Acts chapter 16. We saw Paul's experience there in the city of Philippi. And he goes on to tell them about his own ex- present experience. Paul's writing this from jail that uh, he has appealed to Caesar and been taken off to Rome. He is under house arrest. And the church of Philippi heard about Paul's imprisonment and his need. Being in prison, this type of imprisonment, he would have been responsible to kind of pay his own way and provide for himself. And so the church of Philippi wanted to assist him and send Epaphroditus to Paul in order to help support him, to bring him a gift. And Paul is communicating his love and appreciation, his uh, thanks, thankfulness for this gift and for their service to him. And he sends a letter back to them in the hands of Epaphroditus. And he wants them to know about how the gospel has not been stunted, that the gospel is still being promoted. And he talks to them about his own perspective during this time of imprisonment about whether he will meet his end and go see his Lord, or if God will provide for him future opportunities of service. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul simply states, I know that it is more fruitful and brings more glory to God for me to remain. So that is where I am today. So I will remain here. He's fairly confident that this will not end in his execution, as his future imprisonment would, but that God would see him through this trial and through 
uh, this time to see him delivered, to be able to continue on a fruitful ministry. Paul then moves on in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He begins with this word only transitioning to a new thought, bringing primary importance and emphasis to this next point. Paul is telling them, crucially, I want you to be aware of this next thought. I want you to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this word here is a very interesting word that Paul uses, let your manner of life be worthy. It is that whole phrase there is one word in the Greek. It is the word polituomai. And polituomai means to behave as a citizen, to conduct oneself in a manner that is worthy of the country they hail from. Now, normally when Paul talks about our behavior, our pattern of life, Paul really likes to use the word peripateo, which is your walk, your manner of life. But here he doesn't do that. And as you study through the writings of Paul, you get used to his manner of speaking, his patterns. And when he departs from those patterns, you have to stop and you ask yourself, why? Why do you use this word and not the normal word that you would use? Why this more rare word? He's being strategic in the language that he is using, considering the audience that he is writing to. The word polipetuamai here means to behave as a citizen. You would notice the very beginning of the word has the word polis in it. A city or city-state. The people of Philippi would be very familiar with this emphasis. To give us a proper understanding, let us talk a little bit about what the city of Philippi was about, their history. The city was named after Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. It was, uh, it was established at a very strategic location, and uh, a garrison was established there in 356 BC. And it was declared to be a Roman colony after a significant battle between the forces of Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian would go on to become Caesar Augustus. And they defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius, who were responsible for the assassination of Julius Caesar. So the forces of Rome would meet in the plains of Philippi. After this pivotal battle in 42 BC, the city of Philippi would become a retirement villa, a retirement home for former Roman soldiers. it would therefore become a very pro-Roman city. It was known as a miniature Rome. They would pattern their buildings and even the city layout after the city of Rome. And those who were born in Philippi were granted Roman citizenship, something that was taken very seriously, as you see in, in Acts chapter 16. The city was one of five Macedonian cities that were granted the Iathitalicum, which meant that even though it was outside of the nation of Italy, 
the city would be treated as if it were Italian soil. Similar to today, if you were born in an embassy in a foreign country, you would be considered to be born on American soil. We know they took their citizenship very seriously by the way that they treated Paul after they learned that he was a Roman citizen. Neil read for us the account of Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas are beaten and hauled off to jail. And then when they are called to be released the next day, Paul reminds them or lets them know that he's a Roman citizen and they freak out. Because they took their Roman citizenship very seriously. The magistrates were terrified and they profusely apologized for how Paul had been treated. Living Christian citizenship within the city of Philippi meant standing publicly opposed to what the city itself stood for religiously. The religious makeup of the city is very diverse. It's very syncretistic. If you liked it, it was accepted. We know that Mark Antony was one of the generals of the battle of Philippi, and uh, he had a lot of Egyptian influence in his life, if you're familiar with history. And uh, the city, he placed the city under Iris's protection. There was Egyptian false god and false worship within the city of Philippi. There was the normal cult worship of the Roman emperor that would take place. There was a sanctuary within the city dedicated to Dionysus, the god of wine and debauchery. The city was incredibly syncretistic. Any and every deity was celebrated. The only thing that was not tolerated was a narrow-mindedness of a singular truth. the holding to a God who would share his glory with no other. Interestingly, there's very little Jewish presence in the city, and I don't think that is a coincidence. We see Paul's pattern in the book of Acts when he would go to a new city. His first stop would be a synagogue. We see in the city of Philippi, he gets there and there is no synagogue. He goes to the water where people were known to go and pray. In order for the presence of a synagogue, it would require at least 10 Jewish men to be present. If we're to draw the implication, that means there were fewer than 10 Jewish men in the city. So very little theistic presence within the city. To sum it all up, to be a Christian in Philippi meant taking a stand against society around them and being considered to have no honor and bringing shame to themselves. Paul's call for the Philippians to live their lives worthy of the gospel meant taking their cue from Christ and not the culture around them. And Paul is going to share with them three distinguishing marks in which their citizenship is going to be lived out. He says, if you are living your life as a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of the gospel, there are three ways, three marks in which you can recognize in your life to see if you are living in a way that is consistent with the gospel. We will notice that these three evidences of Christian citizenship are not to be lived out individually, but corporately. The idea of a person living as an island, as 
uh, a singular entity, was a foreign concept to the people of Philippi, or to the people of, of the church. There was no such thing as a singular Christian. If you were a Christian, you were a Christian with the context of a body of believers, a corporate church. You see this in the second person plural form of a lot of the commands within Scripture, the you plural. If uh, the, the small ones who have been translating Greek, a Greek class, when they see uh, uh, a second person plural verb, a second person plural command, you can't translate that effectively in, into English. It's a you. Do you know if it's a you singular, you plural? So they have translated y'all. To communicate that the second person plural, y'all. So Paul here is saying, let y'all's manner of worship, manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We also see all three remind us that we are dependent upon each other for spiritual maturity. Our lives of worship have an effect on the health of the church as a whole. We'll also see that these are present tense actions, meaning that there should be ongoing, habitual parts of our lives. So what is the first distinguishing mark of a church that's living out its citizenship? He says, that I may hear of you that you are, in verse 27, Standing firm, standing firm in one spirit, standing firm in one spirit. Paul says, if you are living your life consistent with the gospel as a citizen of the kingdom of God, that should translate to you standing firm. This is a military term that Paul is using. The idea of fulfilling orders without any compromise. Nathaniel Hawthorne says, or not Nathaniel Hawthorne, <laughs> a different Hawthorne, <laughs> says it conveys the idea of firmness or steadfastness, of unflinching courage like that possessed by soldiers who determinedly refuse to leave their post, irrespective of how severely the battle rages. Paul says, if you are living a life that is consistent with the gospel, it means you stand firm in one place and you are not going to be swayed no matter how fierce the objection that you face is. Paul repeats this command later on in chapter 4, verse 1, almost as bookends within this book of Philippians where he says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He's appealing to them, stand firm on the ground that God has placed you on. This is a common call and appeal for Paul. We see in 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, for now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is a continued theme from Paul. 
to stand firm, to follow your orders without any degree of compromise. This is a call to church unity over the truth of the gospel. As we've noted before, a church must be united on truth. The church at Philippi was clearly in danger from Paul's perspective of being shaken and upset. There was undoubtedly opposition that they faced on a daily basis as we have talked about the religious influences in the city and how those greatly affected the commerce and the life of the city. Paul addresses a possible concern earlier in chapter 1 when he lets them know that God's sovereign plan is still being carried out even through his imprisonment. We understand that they may hear that the Apostle Paul has been thrown into jail. What is happening? Is God's plan still being carried out? Paul says, don't worry. The gospel is still being proclaimed. I'm here. I'm in Rome. I'm proclaiming the gospel, even to the point to where the Praetorian Guard, these men that have to be chained to me on a daily basis, they're a captive audience to a captive witness. Paul says there are those still going out and they're proclaiming God. They see me sidelined. Some of them want to promote themselves. Some of them are, are emboldened by Paul's sacrifice. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Paul must also recall the opposition to the gospel as he was ministering there in Acts chapter 16. Now, we read Acts chapter 16, and we read it through the perspective of Luke, of Paul and Silas, the witnesses, right? And we see at the end of chapter 16, as Neil read, that Paul would leave after saying goodbye and meeting with Lydia and the church there. What we don't stop to consider are the ones that Paul left behind. They had to live in the climate that Paul left behind. The mob certainly didn't cool down. They certainly were not satisfied with the beatings that were laid upon Paul and Silas. They were facing that opposition on a daily basis. And Paul will tell them shortly, verses 29 and 30, that suffering for the sake of Christ is a certainty for them. There is no option. There is no avoidance. If you're going to stand for truth, you will be opposed and you will suffer. But Paul says to them, you must stand firm, stand firm in one spirit. When Paul says spirit here, he's not speaking about the Holy Spirit. Paul is speaking about a singular conviction, a united spirit among the believers in the church of Philippi. In one united conviction, you are standing firm. You are that line of soldiers that God has sovereignly placed in the front, in the thickest of the battle, and you will not retreat. You will not bow. You will not fall back. You will follow the orders that God has given to you in one spirit. 
He's calling for the believers of Philippi to be strongly united in their resolve to stand firm in the gospel. Paul's now going to tell them how this standing firm ought to be carried out. Our second and third characteristics this morning are how this standing firm ought to be carried out, both positively and negatively. So the second characteristic that we see of someone who is living out their citizenship is we should be striving together, striving together. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul moves on from a militaristic picture to one from the athletic realm. He says this, that we are to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder. The, the word here for striving side by side, it was the, the, what, the language that they would use when they were competing in a race together. It says each one of them are to be co-laborers with him and with each other. He uses the same word in chapter 4, verse 3. And he says, Paul is encouraging them to bring together two sisters in the Lord who have had some sort of conflict between them. And Paul says, they've been co-laborers with me. They've striven together side by side with me. Now restore that unity between the two of them. Paul says, you all ought to be striving side by side, competing, locked arm in arm. So there is no weakness. It is a call to struggle, but not to struggle alone, but to strive in the context of fellowship and community. This isn't a call for spectating or cheering or sitting in the stands and watching others compete, but for locking arms with everyone and moving in a united direction. When I consider this, Verb, I am taken back to the playground in recess in elementary school and playing Red Rover, Red Rover. Send Timmy right over. <laughs> I recall the classmates joining arms together, locking their arms, trying to create a line that could not be punctured, driven through. And so they would normally call the weakest one first. And you would sit there and you would analyze where's the weakest point in this chain. Where could, where could I free up their arms? And you run for that link, that weakest link. And I often did not puncture it. <laughs> and I would become part of the mob. And they would normally identify me as the next weakest link. <laughs> But we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, to endure, to persevere, to lend our strength when our brother and sister are weak, to bear the pain of our brothers and sisters, to lift up, to embolden, to encourage, to instruct, to admonish.
each other as we strive forward. And how we are to do this, similar to the previous command, where we were called to do it in one spirit here, Paul says, with one mind, we are to strive. Again, as you become familiar with the language of Paul and what he is accustomed to using, you would think here that he is speaking of the word phreneo, with one thinking, when one one way in which you think that leads to a way of living. That is a theme word within the book of Philippians, but that is not what he uses here. He uses the word suke. Soul, life, mind, who you are at your absolute core, your common spirit, resolved in your heart. The most sincere conviction that you could have Paul is calling a common spirit which believers themselves must strive for is essential if the church at Philippi or anywhere else is to maintain a courageous witness against hostile opposition. Both of these expressions, one commentator said, speaking of with one mind and with one spirit, both of these expressions are intended to remind the Philippians that as Christians, they are in a battle and that a united front is the best strategy for victory. In Bible study this last week, we were talking about the idea, the concept of getting back to normal. Now that recently that's been given a completely separate, different meaning as it used to mean. But oftentimes we view our life as if the current struggle that we're going through is some type of abnormality. It is out of the ordinary. And we can't wait until things just get back to normal, until the struggle that we find ourselves in has, has ceased. I hate to break it to you, but such is life. That is normal. To struggle to groan, as Paul calls it, slight momentary affliction. That's, that's life. That's normal. That is our normal. And Paul's encouraging, in order for us to stand firm, we must be striving together through this normal. With one spirit, with one mind, united in the truth of the gospel. Paul's prayer is that the church of Philippi shares the same God-honoring, Christ-imitating, spirit-empowering, kingdom-focused level of conviction. Now there is a temptation in America, and certainly in New England, for us to take on an individualistic, self-reliant mindset. As a deacon, we often joke at meetings when we ask people how they're doing, if they're going through a difficult time, do you need help? Do you need assistance? And the common refrain is, I'm all set. I'm all set. I'm a hearty New Englander. I don't need help. We don't want to be seen as being a burden to anyone or want to believe that we have everything we need for our lives in and of ourselves. But this is not the way that God has designed the church. We are to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
God has so perfectly equipped his saints with gifts to be able to build up and edify each other for his glory and for our good. Paul recognized that unity was important because the danger the church faces is from the outside. It should not be from within. If there is division in the church, then it is not possible for us to stand shoulder to shoulder. Instead, we are standing face to face. We are focused on our own issues and our own divisions, our own disunity, our own disagreements. And we are then susceptible to the influences and the threats of the world around us. Christians are stronger when they are side by side, exercising the same conviction. And there isn't a single believer that God is designed to be independent or separate from this. You and the church around you are weaker when you are isolated. The third characteristic of how we ought to be living out our citizenship is we should stop giving in to fear. Stop giving in to fear. Paul says that we are to stand firm, and in our standing firm, we are to strive Strive together side by side, and we are to stop being fearful. This word for frightened is a unique word, not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but one that uh, in, in the language was used to describe a stampede of frightened animals. I um, recall growing up on a sheep farm when you would go out and you would try to get the sheep to go in a singular direction, good luck. You would try to, to get them to get like back into a new pasture, into a barn, and we would have this electrical fence that would line the property to keep them in. And sometimes you would get out there and you would not know what has gotten into these sheep. And they would be running and sprinting in all different directions, diving headfirst into electric fences, trying to get away from a perceived threat. Frightened, terrified, scattered. Consider the disciples on the night of Jesus' arrest. They scattered, they were scared. Paul, or Peter, excuse me, denying Christ in the face of a slave girl. And he was the one who dared show his face. They just scattered in the face of persecution and great uncertainty. If there is ever, as a side note, if there is ever an assurance of the power of the Holy Spirit, it is the boldness of the apostles. Paul says here, stop being frightened. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul was familiar with the opposition from all sides. He always had the Jewish opposition, his own kinsmen who wanted to kill him. The Gentiles hated him because he preached a singular gospel. Paul was presently in jail, unsure of what the future held for him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 23, before he was arrested, 
that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. That was Paul's reality, and that was the reality for any believer who would stand for the truth of God's word and the narrowness of the gospel. Paul had no fear of them because he recognized that all the power and authority was in God's sovereignty. Not any earthly opposition he could face had any power that was greater than God's. It doesn't make sense for a citizen of the kingdom of God to fear any other power. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you are a citizen of the gospel, your king has already won. One night, I was sitting in a tent in a field in a very difficult and dangerous situation in Uganda. We had faced a lot of very real spiritual opposition. There were threats around us. Very disconcerting situation. There were other groups of Americans who had been attacked and burned alive. And other cases in which they were robbed of everything that they had and beaten. The Lord's Resistance Army was touring the country and bringing their fear to bear upon anyone who proclaimed the name of Christ. And we found ourselves in a situation where we were scared out of our minds and we had received threats. And I remember sitting in this field surrounded by tents that my friends were staying in and we decided um, that we were going to leave early, that uh, we could not, that our lives were in danger in this situation and it wasn't safe for us to, to stay. And so the next morning we were going to, to leave and I, I sat there and thought, okay, I'm going to stay awake and I'm going to watch. And I, as I sat there, there were groups of people, a very large group of people in the field next to us. And I sat there, my only mode of defense was a mag light that I clutched in my hands and the metal chair on which I sat. And I remember thinking to myself, preach to yourself biblical truth. What do you know to be true? And I asked myself if in these tall weeds that surrounded our outcropping of tents, if in these small weeds I knew there were army rangers standing guard over us at every moment ready to defend us against any onslaught that would come our way, would I be able to rest soundly? And the conclusion that I came to was yes, much more soundly than I would if I thought my only defense were the mag light that was clutched in my hands. And then I asked myself, why do I place more confidence in man than I do in a sovereign God? And I had to confront the fear of my own heart and say, our hands, our lives are in God's hands in his sovereign, capable, purposeful, loving hands. So I went to bed. <laughs> I went to bed and said, God, I'm going to trust you 
to protect us this evening. And here I am today, nothing happened. <laughs> but our, our hearts are tempted to fear. We find ourselves in situations where we may be beaten and arrested, like Paul was. But oftentimes, the opposition we face isn't nearly as strong as that. And Paul says, your resolve, your refusal to be fearful in the face of oppression and opposition, he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When you are resolved in the face of opposition, it produces two things. First, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. They can't get the intended result of their intimidation. It is a sign to them that there is a larger authority. Is it a testimony to those opposing you that your God is bigger than their threat? When you stand for truth and you are opposed, it is God who they stand against and rebel against. It is not you. It is also a sign of your salvation and that from God. Because there is no good reason on God's green earth that you should stand in the face of opposition were not the God behind you stronger and more capable than you. It is a sign of your salvation that you were living out a belief in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. When you find yourself standing in the face of opposition, you draw assurance that God is doing the work of resolve in your own heart. And you look and you see, I am not acting this way because I am singular, singularly brave, inherently brave. But I am doing this because the Holy Spirit is giving me strength to stand firm in the face of opposition. Just like we mentioned with Peter, the same man who in the face of a servant girl would deny his Savior, would give his life for him, would deliver himself over to beating. That is the work of God in his life, and that is the work of God that he is faithful to do in ours. Well, Paul ends this admonishment with an assurance of testing to come. He says in verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul ends this section with a reminder to them that they will suffer. They will be opposed. It has been granted here. The, 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 the language that Paul uses it has been granted to you. The, the root word of that word granted is the word charis or grace. Paul saying, it has been graciously given to you that you should suffer for his sake. Paul says it's a grace of God. It is a form of God's grace that we suffer for his sake. It shouldn't surprise us. Not only should it not surprise us when we face opposition and when we suffer for the, the sake of Christ, 
but it should produce in us the spirit that it produced in Paul and Silas, who rejoiced for the sake of being able to suffer for the name of Christ. We spend so much time and effort opposing what God calls grace. Now, the call to live as a citizen of God's kingdom isn't about attaining to some higher status, but living the life that has been secured for us in Christ. Paul calls this our reasonable form of service in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It is living out the identity that we have been given as a new creation in Christ. All former allegiances must yield and submit to our citizenship to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be times when you are tempted to yield to sin and temptation in your life. But don't worry, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. There will be times where opposition is strong. There will be times when fear may drive us to consider behavior that compromises the gospel. Be assured, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There will be times when we'll be tempted to compromise, to see something else as worthy of our allegiance. We may fall prey to a siren song wooing us to indulge the flesh, to starve the spirit. Preach to yourself the supremacy of knowing Christ and being known by him. Echo the sentiments that Paul would say later on in the Philippians. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. May God continue to give us the grace to live lives worthy of the gospel. May he strengthen our footing to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. May he aid us in striving together in unity for the truth of God's word. And may he enlighten our hearts and guard us from the fear to stand for the truth of God's word. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. who has given to us a spirit as a guarantee. May God be gracious to fulfill his promises and may we be faithful to believe them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you have given to us a new citizenship, a new identity bought with the blood of Christ, secured with the resurrection from the dead. sealed with your spirit. Lord, we pray that our lives would be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that we would live out this citizenship that you have granted to us, that we would stand firm in one spirit, that we would strive side by side and not be frightened by anything because we know a God who is sovereign because we have so many promises that you have given to us. May we stand upon those promises. May we live upon those promises. May we preach those promises to ourselves and to our hearts, to each other. And may we believe those promises. We praise your name. Amen. As we prepare.